perpetual war. And ever since Storm and One, World War III's been fighting World War IV. David Brooks and Comrade Trotsky both believe in one world class. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains, and the opposite is America. Because America is now one big gay disco. Yes, yes, I that's am not, That's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? One big gay disco. Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Fight for the gay disco. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs. You're on fighting for the gay disco. What? Are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains, and the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That's what they, that's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. Is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think that God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? One big gay disco. Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Uh, it's snowing in South Bend. Uh, the winter has arrived a little bit later, and uh, we are launched into 2023 a year uh, which will bring about fundamental changes in the way we, in the world we live in today. The tectonic plates are going to shift during this year the ge and the geopolitical configuration that emerges by the end of the year will be different than the one that we have now. And so in some sense that we're uh, at the end of an era uh, the Italians uh, created an outburst of publications. The Catholic Church uh, apparently now publishes uh, uh, all of its memoirs now in Italian. The Italian press is interested in this. And what we saw after, uh, the, during the beginning, the first three weeks of uh, 2023, was uh, a number of books in Italian, memoirs. Uh, 
Uh, Cardinal Mueller issued his memoir. He wants to set the record straight about what happened to him, uh, why he got fired as head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, Georg Gunswein uh, published his memoir. He was the secretary to Cardinal, uh, to Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, actually Pope Benedict the uh, 16th. And uh, the most important memoir was the memoir, the posthumous memoir of Benedict XVI himself, uh, otherwise known as Joseph Ratzinger. Now, uh, Ratzinger uh, is a man uh, who wants to have the last word. Uh, it's clear from this memoir that he is here to justify his papacy, justify his existence, justify his entire career. Uh, everything he stood for uh, throughout his long career, uh, one of the most, probably, I would say, the most influential churchmen of the 20th century, uh, one of the most controversial, one of the most disputed, and without a doubt, uh, one of the most unique in the fact that he resigned, uh, the first pope to resign in uh, 800 years. So, to set the tone, now, uh, I'm, I'm going to read it in the original. There is a, a translation, a, an AI translation out there in English. I, I don't want to be misled by, by a machine and the mistakes that a machine could make, so I'm going to try and uh, correlate this as much as I can with the original Italian. So, uh, he tells us at the beginning of his book, I don't want to publish anything anymore, at least not in life because the fury of the circles against me in Germany is so strong that the appearance of my every word immediately causes a murderous shout from them. I want to spare myself and Christendom that. Da parte mia in vita non voglio più pubblicare nulla. La furia dei circoli a me contrari in Germania è talmente forte che l'apparizione di ogni mia Parola subito provoca da parte loro un vociare assassino. Voglio risparmiare questo a me stesso e alla cristianità. Okay, well, that's, uh, there's a tone here that I just find, uh, I, I can't, I'm trying to find the right word, touching, uh, but maybe not just touching, maybe a little bit resentful about the way he's been treated, a little bit of, uh, uh, is he sulking here? Is that is that too much to say here? Uh, I'm not going to, and there's this contradictory uh, impulse here. I don't want to publish anything anymore, at least not in this life. So now he's like coming back uh, from the grave. Why, why does he feel he has to harangue us from the grave? Is that, is that too strong? I'm trying not to be polemical here, but I, at the same time, I'm trying to come up with a, an accurate interpretation of this message that we just got here. I don't want to publish anything anymore, he tells us, in a publication that came out after he was dead. Why uh, shouldn't the dead bury the dead? Shouldn't we just leave it at that? Why does why does he have this? There seems to be some type of insecurity here. 
uh, some type of determination. I'm going to set the record straight. And uh, I think that that determination is a sign of some type of insecurity. So uh, it, how do we get into this? Uh, in this memoir, Ratzinger claims, he goes uh, right to uh, the Jewish question. Not right to, it's in the middle of the book, but it's a certainly an important part of the book. Ratzinger claims that the spiritus movens behind Vatican II was Auschwitz. Since the days of direct, this is the English, since the days of Auschwitz, it has been clear that the church must rethink the question of the nature of Judaism. Vatican II, with its declaration, Nostra Tate, gave the first fundamental indications in this regard. Dai tempi di Auschwitz, è chiaro che la Chiesa deve ripensare la questione della natura del giudaismo. Il Vatican II, con la dichiarazione e nostra tate, ha dato il riguardo delle prime fondamentali indicazioni. What does that mean? What are we talking about here? And then uh, he gets into an exchange of letters with the chief rabbi of Israel, a man by the name of Ari Folger. Uh, in that letter, he claims that Christian anti-Semitism is responsible for the rise of national socialism in Germany. Why did he publish this letter? Especially since he earlier claimed, and this is the way I remember this from when it first came out, he contradicted that claim. His previous explanation was that uh, Nazism was a neo-pagan ideology, that it had nothing to do with Christianity. And then he goes, so bad, now we're backtracking here. Thus a dispute ensued. This is him back trying to explain the, how this developed. This dispute, unfortunately, was conducted by Christians often or even almost always without due respect for the other side. On the contrary, it formed the sad history of Christian anti-Semitism, which has lately resulted in the sad history of Nazi anti-Semitism and stands before us with the sad culmination of Auschwitz. I contrario. Si è formata la triste storia dell'antisemitismo cristiano, che ultimamente è sforziata nella triste storia dell'antisemitismo nazista, e ci sta davanti con il triste culmine di Auschwitz. I think that was a faithful, English was faithful pretty much to that, the original. I had to say this, it was in a tweet I did. Uh, either today or yesterday, my initial reaction was this is a shameless, a shameful capitulation to the polemics of Jews like Jules Isaac, Daniel Jonah Goldhaga, Misha Brumlick, and others too numerous to mention. Ratzinger ended up being a tragic victim of social engineering who never understood how completely he internalized the commands of his oppressors or, more importantly, how he imposed those commands on the Catholic faithful he abandoned when he resigned. Now, he then goes on to say that there is a greater affinity between 
Israel and the church when it comes to morality. On September 4, 2018, Rabbi Folger responded uh, uh, by writing, it's really true. Jews and Catholics in this time are particularly called to work together to, to preserve the maintenance of morality in the West. What is he talking about? What is this fiction that somehow Jews and Catholics have the same morality? By the time these letters were made public, 400 Jewish organizations had announced that abortion was a fundamental Jewish value. Torpedoing, blowing up any notion that there is some type of shared heritage here between Jews and Christians. Now, I know I'm not a Marcionite, okay? I know that Christianity is based on the Old Testament uh, leavened uh, by, by Greek philosophy as capitulated, recapitulated by St. John in his gospel, which he begins by saying, in the beginning there was Logos. I know that, but we're not talking about Hebrews here. We're talking about Jews. And these two people, I mean, Ratzinger certainly, is talking as if Jews and Hebrews are the same thing. And the rabbi uh, uh, likes this idea. And he tries to, this is obviously before, it's four years before the abortion is a fundamental Jewish value thing comes out. And so it's in that world of uh, what I would call illusion. But this is, this is, what, we, this is what he says. Uh, together, we can be much stronger than isolated. Together, I mean, forking for what? What, what did, have Jews and Catholics ever worked together on? When, uh, when the Obama administration forced, or was going to force the Little Sisters of the Poor to buy contraceptives, the Jews refused to enter some type of amicus curiae belief on part of the sisters and told the government, impose it, force them to do that. That was the first response. Apparently, uh, Rabbi Folger didn't get that memo. He says, we have common values and both denominations care about the Hebrew Bible. Even if we interpret it differently in many points, we have a common ground here. We still represent both confessions that show and politically support great tolerance. Have you noticed any tolerance from the ADL lately? Uh, did Was Kanye West uh, the recipient of great tolerance when he tried to talk about his Jewish trainer? But then, anyway, this, is, this is four years ago. Of course, there is also extremists in each of the two denominations, but as a member of the European Conference of Rabbis, the Conference of Orthodox Rabbis of Germany and the Rabbinical Council of America, all well-known organizations of Orthodox Jews, I can confirm that it is always important for us to engage for a tolerant society and that we are always horrified when a fanatic from our ranks expresses or behaves differently. Okay, now what do you have to do to qualify as a fanatic? I mean, I could give you lots of examples from fanatics and their from their ranks uh, in Israel, uh, urging the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, something like that. Uh, 
what about uh, saying that the uh, new covenant made the old covenant obsolete? Ratzinger uh, says there has never been any support for that in the Catholic faith. In communio, this is what he says, this is the rabbi saying, in the communio, you maintain that the church has never believed in the theory of substitution. Well, wait a minute. You just said that uh, Christian anti-Semitism led to Auschwitz. Uh, the rabbi is uh, aware that there's something going on here. There's a kind of contradiction going on here. Uh, and he starts to bring this out, okay? As emeritus, supreme representative of the Catholic Church, you can certainly support this argument. It is even of great importance to anchor the hist historically partly new views in the past of the oldest teachings. In this regard, however, we cannot forget the crimes of the past. The Jew is bringing this up. Even if they are now considered contrary to Christian principles, they were committed by Christians in the name of Christianity. Now, what crimes is he talking about here? Today, he goes on, the Jewish pigs on German churches and the church and synagogue statues on the facade of Strasbourg Cathedral and many other places are as much reminiscent of a dark past as today's relationship of peace and friendship. On the other hand, it is not permissible to forget the story and argue that in truth everything was also going well because the criminals were presumably supporters of an erroneous theology. What is that erroneous theology? It's supersessionism. That's the bone of contention here. And Ratzinger is saying, oh, we never believed in supersessionism. And uh, the rabbi is saying, no, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Uh, and it caused us unspeakable pain. Now, what did he bring? What, what is, what, first of all, what is the evidence here? What is the, what is the symbol of supersessionism? <laughs> it's the Judenzau, according to this rabbi. Do you know what the Judenzau is? You can look it up. It's on Google. It was basically an image of a pig, a sow, and there's one Jew riding on the back, lifting up its tail and smelling its ass, and the other Jews are sucking on its on its tits. Now that's uh, you know that's pretty that's pretty harsh, but it's not in the Bible, and it's got nothing to do with supersessionism. Why is why is why is the rabbi talking this way? Why is the rabbi forced to go and pick up this thing of the Judenzau, which is a creation of the German mind during the Middle Ages? which probably came about because of the way Jews treated Germans during this period of time. The most famous Judenzau was on the wall uh, leading into the ghetto in Frankfurt, leading to the Judengasse in Frankfurt. Goethe remembers it in his, uh, in his autobiography, in Dichtung und Wahrheit, talked about seeing it as a child, talked about how scary it was as a child to see it. Well, I think it was supposed to be scary, because the Judenzau, in this instance, was a warning. You're, enter you're leaving Germany at this point. You're entering a, a, a foreign, uh, this is, uh, that's the one at the Wittenberg Cathedral. That's the one Luther talked about. 
Uh, there's another one in, in Frankfurt. Anyway, you're leaving Germany, you're entering alien territory, and there's danger there. What's the danger in the Judengasse? Well, it's called, uh, you could tell the dangerous place because it had a red sign out there. And what's the German word for red sign? Rothschild. And we call it Rothschild. And Meyer Amsher Rothschild was there, and he would lend you money. And that was the danger. The danger that the Germans were talking about is if you go to the Jew and borrow some money, you're going to end up in trouble. It's also the message of the Merchant of Venice, as I've said many times. It was the conventional wisdom of the West which allowed the church, and even in England where they didn't have the church anymore, it allowed the church to protect its own people by keeping them away from usury. So in this sense, uh, in one sense, In one sense, the rabbi knows more about theology than the pope. I hate to say this, because the rabbi understands that supersessionism is a direct and ineradicable part of the scriptures. Just read the parable about the vineyard, about the people uh, who were, uh, the Lord leased out the vineyard to wicked men, and they used it as their own property when it wasn't their property. And so the owner got upset and he sent uh, some servants to them and they murdered the servants. And then he sent his only son and they murdered his only son. Well, guess who that son was? It was Jesus Christ. And he came to claim the vineyard because now there is going to be a new shoot uh, grafted onto this vineyard. The vineyard is Christ. The stock is Christ. It's not the Jewish people. The stock is Christ, and both Jewish and Gentile branches grow out of that stock, and the Jews didn't like that, and they killed him. That's the essence. If you want a pictorial representation, a symbolic representation, that supersession has got nothing to do with the Judenzahl. The Judenzahl is the German reaction to Jewish predatory behavior. And to, for us to say, oh, that, you know, polite people don't talk that. Well, you're right. And the question is, what are we talking about? Are we talking about being polite? Or are we talking about being faithful to the tradition? Or, uh, uh, let's face it, uh, we, have, we have the same problem here in the United States. It's not the Judenzahl. It's statues of Robert E. Lee, uh, which uh, people are not allowed to defend anymore. Although we did defend successfully the statue of Louis IX in in St. Louis. This is, this is the crisis in his, in his attempt to set the record straight from the grave. Ratzinger has <laughs> muddied the waters and muddied the waters so much he needs the rabbi to straighten them out. Anyway, that's my harangue. What do you have to say? Okay. Um, all right, time for the uh, chat section of the program. Uh, hello, this voice is Mike Bajakis. I'm Dr. Jones' assistant. Uh, for those who don't know, the Collins are made via our Telegram channel. The link is in the description for those in Cozy. Right there, just scroll down, it's right there. Uh, in Telegram, I'll call on anyone who uh, raises their hands. We won't get to everybody, um, but we will attempt to. Um, later in the stream, uh, if people have texts, uh, and they don't want to call, they can just kind of write the text and telegram, write it in cozy. We'll answer those questions as well. Uh, there are no uh, paid super chats required, so it's free to all. Uh, quick rules here. Try to keep questions on subject, roughly. Um, try to keep the one question. Be respectful of time. Very important. 
don't forget to unmute yourself. Every week there's always somebody. All right, let's go to Telegram. Um, let's see, F Fizzy, F1ZZYYY, you are allowed to speak. Hello, Dr. Jones. Hello. Uh, so I have a question. Uh, your famous thesis is that the religious rejection of the Logos is the reason why the Jews are so overrepresented in like revolutionary and Catholic movements, right? Yes. So um, as far as I can, as far as I know, many of these Jews were and are secular. So could you explain a bit how that works if they're not religious? Thank you. Well, there's, there seems to be a, a group of people who, def, who say a Jew has to be religious in order to be a Jew. This is not the case. A Jew is someone born of a Jewish mother, period. Oh, wait a minute, there's an exception. If that Jew gets baptized, uh, he's no longer a Jew. So the only qualification is, is, is racial, and, but then that's trumped by a religious uh, uh, overlay, so that's complicated. There's nothing that says a Jew has to be religious in order to be a Jew. Now, do all Jews reject uh, the Logos? Yes, all Jews. All Jews. Uh, the religious Jews have the Talmud. The first rejection of the Logos incarnate was the Talmud. It was a religious rejection. Over a period, over the period of, of years, I described this evolution in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, uh, you had certain seminal events like the rise of Shabbatai Zivi. Uh, Shabbatai Zivi uh, uh, was uh, the Jewish Messiah. Every synagogue in Europe ac acknowledged him to be the Jewish Messiah. He went to Constantinople to take the, uh, the, the uh, turban off the uh, uh, sultan's head, and he was uh, arrested and put up against the wall and uh, threatened uh, the archers were going to fire arrows at him, and if he were the true Messiah, then it, it, the arrows wouldn't hurt him. At that point, he capitulated. Uh, he abandoned Judaism and became a Muslim. Uh, when that word got out, it was the biggest catastrophe to hit Judaism uh, since the destruction of the temple. At that point, the Jews went into a state of shock, uh, and the result was the Hasidim movement of basically just leave us alone in the shtetl and we'll just, you know, we'll just uh, mind our own business. We'll follow things as we have. No more messianic politics. And the Hasidim have, uh, in, in a sense, stayed true to that uh, to this day. But they're not. So you have generational change, geopolitical change. Uh, the partition of Poland suddenly now puts all the Jews that were on the eastern border of Poland, on the western border of Russia. It's a completely different situation. Uh, ideas start trickling in from Berlin to the Pale of the Settlement, and the Jews become revolutionaries now in the secular sense of the word that we know with the rise of uh, Marxism, communism, and socialism. So that uh, change uh, from, from, let's say, religious rejection of the Logos to secular, uh, uh, political, uh, revolu revolutionary rejection is a, a change in the population, but the, the rejection remains constant. I, I hope that answers your question. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you a lot. You're God welcome. bless you, Dr. Jones. Thank you. Next, we have a lobster to you. You're unmuted. Go ahead. Hey, good evening. Can you hear me? Hello. 
Hello. Um, so my question is uh, about Taylor Martin and John Henry. Or like all these, um, like, uh, I guess you could say Vatican News guy. Um, what do you think of them? What's your... You're going to have to repeat that. I couldn't hear you. Who? Dr. Taylor Marshall and uh, John Henry. What do you think of? Uh, oh, why, why am I called to judge people? Why, why am I called to do this? I have, are you talking about John Henry Weston? We I talked about uh, LifeSite News, an article that they published saying in order to be pro-life, you have to be fight anti-Semitism. Uh, that was uh, uh, about a year ago. Uh, I took issue with that. Uh, we have now talked about uh, the Jewish infiltration of the Right to Life movement that uh, LifeSite News was part of. Whether they're still part of it, whether they want to continue to be part of it, that's, that's their business. Uh, but it needed to be exposed, and you can read about it in this month's issue of uh, Culture Wars, picture of uh, Ben Shapiro uh, on the cover. Uh, that's about as best I can say. All right, thank you. You're thank welcome. you. Okay, here we go. Um, Dindinger, Dindinger, I'm pronouncing that correct. I never pronounce things correctly. Let me unmute you. All right, floor's yours. Dindinger. All right, all right, sorry. I couldn't figure out the unmute. Hello, uh, Dr. Jones, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you turn, Excellent. Go, turn it down a little bit. All right. Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. As, uh, I have a similar question, but I, I was wondering if you know the, the work of Dr. Uh, Wolfgang Smith, and if so, um, do you have thoughts about, uh, about his work and, and his contributions? No, I don't know his work, and I have no obviously no opinion on something I don't know. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. That was it. All right, going quick here. Very good. Uh, next, let's see. Giuseppe Ricci, floor is yours. Don't forget you're on mute. Uh, yes, can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jones. So I have a question about the, the Khazar hypothesis. So um, I understand that during the Roman Empire, most of the Jews were spread out all throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the various cities. And then the city, the, the empire falls and you have Jews in the empire. Um, then I'm reading the Jewish revolutionary spirit and I see how you detail Jews move from Spain to the Netherlands to Poland and Russia. Uh, but uh, for my PhD thesis, I studied uh, steppe nomadic pastoral peoples. And during that study, I read a lot about the Khazars. And I personally don't find a lot of uh, evidence for um, the Khazars when their empire fell, those Jewish people moving throughout Europe. Um, now, I, I agree that the most of the Jews, specifically the Ashkenazi today, are not certainly not Semitic because right. they lived in Europe and they intermarried with Indo-European people. But I just don't find a lot of evidence that they are Turkic. Um, can you point me in the direction of some scholarship or comment on that? Yeah, I got it from the uh, an article in the National Geographic on the Genome Project. So if you check out okay. the Genome Project, it should, they said that the uh, Khazars were Turkic people that lived on the northern shore of the Black Sea. That's right. That's where I got it. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right, uh, next we got GBOS88. 
a regular here on the show. All right, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Dr. Jones. Hello. Um, I think one question uh, I want to ask you is, I think um, it's just a question on like the, um, I guess the way that I, I've seen like evangelicals interpret the Bible versus how like other Christians have interpreted the Bible, especially in, in terms of Catholics. And one thing I've noticed is that I think like evangelicals have this thing of like, when like the, when they see like Israel, like in the Bible, the problem with them is that they seem to like think that like the Israel that is said in the Bible is supposed to represent the uh, modern day Zionistic Israel. But, you know, obviously, of course, we've seen that, you know, that can't be the case. But I think the thing is, is, is like also, I feel like evangelicals also like are very, um, how do you say this? Like they don't, um, like they kind of nitpick which certain Bible verses they read. And like, I feel like the, a lot of their arguments for being pro like Zionistic Israel tend to be mo mostly from the old Testament and like, they don't really reach in for the new Testament a lot. So to keep it quick, my question to you, right. Is what exactly do you think that the problem, one of the problems with evangelicals would be that would be that they don't really uh, read some certain like parts of like the New Testament besides like the the Gospels, like um, you know, Mark, Luke, John, no. you know, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the, you're right. The problem has to do with the Bible. Uh, the problem is uh, basically the Schofield Bible, the notes to the Schofield Bible. Uh, created this kind of heretical kind of Zionism that uh, has taken up uh, uh, its abode uh, among evangelicals uh, to this day. Uh, Schofield was promoted by uh, uh, the Untermeyer family in, in New York, uh, Jews that had a serious connection with the publishing industry. They got the Schofield Bible to be brought out by Oxford University Press, which it never could have done without uh, Jewish intervention. And that has been the main thing. Those notes have been the main thing corrupting the minds of, of these people. This is why the Catholic Church was very careful about which Bible, which translation you read. This translation has been uh, uh, hijacked, hijacked by Schofield and, and those people, the dispensationalists. There's another issue here. And the other issue is basically as soon as you break with the Catholic Church, you lose that sense of the church as the new covenant. It, it was, in other words, one group of people was superseded by another group of people, okay? So uh, the Jews uh, became the Jews, uh, but the Israel people who were loyal to the covenant of Moses and accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah became the church. And if you don't have the concept of the church, you think the church is something you can— uh, set up by renting a storefront, uh, you're never going to understand this. That is the whole problem. That's the secondary problem. And so when you find, let's for example, when the, when the Puritans, Puritans were Judaizers, as soon as they set themselves up as their own church, they have to start looking for some type of legitimacy. And they can only find it by going to the Old Testament. They have to bypass the whole thing. And the Old Testament, once you take the Bible out of the church, it becomes a revolutionary manifesto, and that's exactly the effect it had on the Puritans, who then could exterminate the Irish because they were Amalek, 
and uh, the Puritans were the Israelites. You know, same thing happened with Zionism. Okay, you're transposing, you're taking, you're hijacking the Old Testament, you're taking that as your model without any type of authority or church to interpret it, and you're turning it into a revolutionary or, or a, a Zionist manifesto. I think that's what happened. All right, uh, next will be Charles Otto William, hold on, Charles Otto William Wade. Go ahead. Good evening, Dr. Good, Jones. Good evening. Uh, what I was going to ask about was, um, I'm interested in the way you would describe the relationship uh, between uh, Muslims and Logos. Because as, as we know, like, whereas the Jews are fundamentally anti-Logos, but that would uh, also imply that they, they also have a fundamental understanding of Logos, but choose to reject it. But you've often described uh, as uh, you've often described it as uh, Logos left uh, the station without without them in in relation to the Muslims. And I was wondering if you could uh, speak to that in more detail. Yeah, uh, I go into this in detail in Logos Rising, the whole rise of uh, Islam. But basically, you're right. The, the Jews are anti-Logos. The Muslims are what, what I've called alogos. They, 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 never, they never comprehended it. And this is from the beginning. So from the beginning, you have uh, this new idea of Christian monotheism spreading throughout the Middle East. We're talking about, let's say, the 5th, 6th century AD. And it's been translated into Aramaic along the Hejaz, which is the eastern shore of the Red Sea. And the Arabs in the interior are hearing these stories, and they're fascinated by these stories. And uh, what happens is that these stories end up in the Quran uh, as undigested rumors, so to speak. So you've got a, a statement like, uh, in the beginning, there was Logos. That's very hard to understand if you're not a Greek especially if you're speaking a Semitic language, which is very concrete, like the, the Psalms, you know, God is my rock, this type of thing. This is, not, this is alien. And so they tried their best to, to deal with it, and they came up with the idea of, I know, it's, it's a book. It's like a book. I, I know what a book is. I'm not sure what Logos is, but I know what a book is. And so Logos becomes a book, and not only becomes a book, it becomes the Koran, and it's literally a book in heaven. And that, the angel Gabriel literally reads that book, flies down, and whispers it into the ear of, of Muhammad. This is part of the problem from the beginning. The problem got exacerbated by the fact that uh, the caliphs took over Islam and turned God into an exalted caliph and basically crushed any type of uh, philosophical investigation about God. There were groups that, like the Mutazilites, that uh, tried to integrate Aristotle into their, their thinking, Greek thought into their thinking, and they were invariably uh, denounced as heretics. And the group called the uh, followers of al-Ashari, the Asherites, triumphed and talked about the incoherence of the philosophers. Uh, that was a, a book attacking uh, the Aristotelians, and then they, always, they won out. And so they were, they've been constantly crippled 
in their attempt to come up with some type of philosophical categories that would allow them to understand God better. The, Greek, the, uh, the Greeks, the church, on the other hand, so they, the Muslims conquered uh, within like a, an instant, within a century. They had all of these countries to administer. They were the government. The Christians didn't do this. They were a persecuted minority and basically existed without any type of governmental responsibility up until the time of Constantine, which is three centuries, which means you had time to have philosophical disputes, discussions, and that's precisely what happened when they came up with the Trinity, that was a Greek discussion. If you didn't know Greek, you weren't part of the discussion because it came down to the difference between one letter and two Greek words, homo usion, one in being with the Father, one in being and uh, or consubstantial, and homoi usion, which is like the Father, which is the, the Aryan uh, uh, subversion of that. So that's the, the, the group that interests me the most is the Iranians, because I've been there, I've, I've had conversations with a lot of them, and uh, they were a group that was conquered. They were an ancient culture conquered by a group of camel jockeys and goat herders who did not have a high culture. And their Islam was imposed on them, and they were, for two centuries after the conquest, the Iranian, the Persians said nothing. They were stunned. And then finally, they started to gain their voice. The Persians never gave up their language. And the result was that they had poetry, and Ferdowsi wrote the Persian epic uh, about 200 years after the conquest, and they retained that ability to have this kind of dual vision uh, and a kind of critique of Islam uh, to this day. Unfortunately, it's led to kind of schizophrenia to this day, where you have Westernizers and Islamic fundamentalists, and I've been talking to these people trying to resolve that. But I, this is a, a long way of trying to explain to you the difference between something got crippled because of political machinations and conquest as opposed to something that was totally rejected, uh, which is the situation with the Jews. Up next, we have Lloyd, good old Lloyd. We like hearing from Lloyd. Floor is yours. Hi, Mike. Um, uh, I've just got a question in, rela in relation to uh, that the hierarchy and the, the cardinals and the church, etc. Was there any discomfort that that you know of that they'd sort of expressed about the way Pope Benedict the Sixteenth was constantly sort of pandering to the Jews? You, are you aware of anything that the cardinals expressed? The, oh, just, just any, hierarchy. Uh, in, in terms uh, no, absolutely yeah. no. There, there is a consensus. This is the consensus that. Ratzinger imposed on the church, first as a peritus, then as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and then finally as pope. After that succession of offices, there was this, uh, uh, basically, uh, he imposed the Holocaust narrative on the church through Nostra Aetate. Uh, the church was responsible. This is an extreme version of what has been there all along, and as far as I, I can't think of anyone anyone, uh, any cardinal I ever talked to, any prelate who objected to this. It was, it took over to total control over the mind of the church. Extraordinary. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Next, we have uh, P. 
Pacostas, Pacostas, you're unmuted. Go ahead. Pacostas, Pacostas. Don't forget to unmute yourself. Pacostas. Pacostas. Was I pronouncing that P? Man, I'm tired. Obviously, it's a Pacostas. No, going once. P. Costas going twice. All right, maybe next time. Uh, Servium, you're next. Go ahead. Servium, don't forget to unmute. Hello, Dr. Jones. Yes, hello. Uh, so I just have a question just um, on your thoughts about the uh, late uh, Cardinal Pell, uh, George Pell, and uh, his relationship with... Um, the late Pope as well, and um, if it, if you think uh, you know anything nefarious happened surrounding uh, his his uh, untimely death, thanks. Uh, yes, he was. God bless. He thank you. He was uh, uh, put in charge of uh, investigating the finances at the Vatican, and suddenly uh, he's indicted in Australia for child molestation or something like that. He he knew something and he didn't act or something like that. And he was railroaded uh, by the by uh, the, 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 that the most communist uh, area of uh, Australia, the southernmost part. Uh, is it Wellington, Victoria? Anyway, notorious for left wing. The worst COVID lockdown took place there. Completely a totalitarian state. And he was railroaded, but he was railroaded with help from the Vatican. Uh, uh, Cardinal Bitshoot. Cardinal Betchew apparently sent $100,000 down there uh, to facilitate his uh, prosecution. Now, this is rumor, okay, that when the Pope heard about this, he fired Betchew, and Pell himself said that this was an injustice. He should have been put on trial to ascertain the truth of this. I was talking to Car uh, Bishop uh, uh, Perich of uh, Mostar, who's uh, emeritus now. He said, well, we'll have to wait for the trial where well, there isn't a trial. So, Okay, we can establish the fact, let's assume that it's true. We can establish the fact that the, the Vatican tried to do him in already. They tried to get him put in jail and have them throw away the key. And he spent over a year in solitary confinement until finally the Supreme Court overturned the ruling and then he got out and then he went back to uh, Rome and apparently he wanted to have a hip transplant and he died in the hospital. Now, I am always suspicious when people die in the hospital. I think the hospital is one of the best places to kill someone. I think uh, George Patton was killed in the hospital. I think Alfred Kinsey was killed in the hospital. I could go down the list. Okay? And I think we already established that there was some animus against Pell in the Vatican. And so uh, it, it's... I, I have no... I'm just speculating here, but it seemed plausible that that animus continued and maybe it found... maybe maybe. They did something to him that led to his death. That's the best I can say. All right. It's uh, kind of uh, getting to the point where we're uh, getting... Yeah, it's about time to do some questions from uh, Cozy as well as a couple from the chat. I'm going to try to focus more from like here on out on Cozy because you guys on Telegram get like a good chance and then people on Cozy don't necessarily call. So we'll, we'll kind of, I'll focus more on their questions. But I'll do a couple on Telegram first. Um... All right, 
let's see, Cicero Rules asks, uh, the ICKSP are loyal to the Pope and maintain the traditional celebration of the Mass. Do you believe they are doing harm to the Catholic faith? If so, why? Okay, the first issue is not the groups that are in a, uh, are loyal to or stayed within the church. The first issue is the SSPX, which is in schism. Uh, I just gave a podcast, did a podcast with Gemma Do O'Doherty about Ireland, and I said basically, if you go to a Lefevreite chapel in Ireland, you are weakening the Catholic Church, and if you weaken the Catholic Church, you are basically uh, preventing them, preventing them from uh, restoring the moral order. So that's the primary thing. Now, the question is, has traditionis, no, has Samorum Pontificorum led to disunity in the church? I think you could make an argument for that. Uh, it's not my job. Uh, I don't know why the Pope had to do that that way. I think it was the Jesuits who didn't like people going to the Latin Mass, which was not the right motive. Now there are people saying they're going to, he's going to crack down even more now that Benedict is dead. I think this is a, a bad way of handling a situation that could potentially lead to disunity, but now it's being exacerbated by the heavy-handed way in which it's being carried out. That's the best I can say. And for those who don't know, the ICKSP are the, uh, they're the Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest. Moving on, uh, another one from Telegram, Faber Virbra, let's see, nope, that's not a question. Where was it? It was a pretty good question. Ah, there we are, from Music Television, uh, question for Dr. Jones, what is your opinion on the Irish author James Joyce? Thank you. Okay, let me start by saying that James Joyce had a, a huge influence on my life as a young man. And I'm talking specifically about the portrait of the artist as a young man. Uh, and it led to, I, I'd have to say, I, I read it when I was in college. I felt that this is, he's talking about the world I lived in because I lived in a kind of Irish ghetto uh, in Philadelphia. And it seemed like that, that, that world to me. And I have to say, it led me to uh, apostatize. Uh, from the faith. There was a period when I did not go to church, and I think that the reading the portrait of the artist as a young man contributed to that. There is that end, the ending of it, which is an act of rebellion uh, against the church, uh, but it, it's very murky. And so I think uh, over the period of time, I came back to the church when I went to Germany, and then I started studying literature. I did my PhD in literature. That was American literature. But I started to realize, wait a minute, I think I'm going to go back to that that ending of what happened in Nighttown, what happened there, I think he was visiting prostitutes. Now, if you visit prostitutes in 1919 or whatever it was around that time, 1920, let's say 1920, uh, if you visit prostitutes anytime around that period, but especially after World War I, you have a very high chance of contracting syphilis. And I think uh, now, my uh, view is that Joyce contracted syphilis. And I think the manifestation of that was not Ulysses, but Finnegan's Wake. Now, if you can make sense out of Finnegan's Wake, go write a dissertation on it, because it is a, a complete breakdown of language. It's not any one particular language. It's Joyce's experience living in Europe as an exile, picking up Italian, all these German, all these other things. Uh, in the air, 
uh, and I think it's a symptom of syphilis. Uh, when the syphilis goes to the brain, tertiary syphilis, you have delusions of grandeur. Uh, this is the classic example is uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, but not so much that, the lair of the white worm. Uh, Bram Stoker had syphilis. Dracula is a manifestation of syphilis, but even more the white worm. There's delusions of grandeur that that guy has with uh, electricity, stuff like that. I think that uh, this is exactly what we're talking about with with uh, Finnegan's Wake. So uh, my, my uh, what should I say, my evaluation of him uh, declined even in spite of the effect he had on me as a young man. Uh, S from uh, Telegram, last one on Telegram, asked pretty good question, very practical question for us here. Uh, since you recommended us last week to educate ourselves by reading your books, what is the best way to get them in Europe? Do they get also distributed from Europe? If not, what would it be po uh, what would it be possible to do that? Thank you. There is only one way to get the books. You have to go to the website. Now, if I were Ben Shapiro and I had the money of the Daily Wire behind me, if I were Yuval Noah Harari, you would see my books in every train station in Europe and you could pick them up for a song. But unfortunately, I am neither of those people and I'm being persecuted by those people. And so I have to print them over here and I have to mail them to you in Europe. There's no other way to get them. I wish, I wish the postage rates weren't so high. Sometimes they're more than the price of the book. I have no way of starting my own post office. I wish the customs office wouldn't hold your book for you or something like that. I have no way of dealing with this. All I can do is write the book. I do more than that. I produce the book. I send, we send the book out to you. And at that point, that's beyond my control. But that's the only way you can get my books. I wish it were otherwise, but that's it. And that website you can get those books on is... is Joan, uh, I'm sorry, is uh, culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. I can't, the books are really important because it's not just this scatterbrained one topic to another. Uh, not that I'm, uh, this is what it is. It's the internet, it's a podcast, it is what it is. But the ideas are put in systematic form. The vehicle for ideas is books. I mean, we have a great opportunity here to talk to each other, but the vehicle ideas is always going to be books. It's not going to change because it's the only thing that can maintain sophisticated thought over a period of time. And uh, I, the only reason I have something coherent to say here on the podcast is because I wrote the book. It's the only way you can organize your ideas. All right, uh, moving to Cozy uh, from Save Groiper V3. Question, uh, is there any significance to the books that were considered when the Bible was established but didn't make it? Well, uh, you mean the, the, uh, the gospel, like the, the gospel the of St. Thomas? The gospel of St. Thomas. Well, yeah, of course it's significant because the, the, uh, the, your, our evangelical brothers uh, give you the impression that the Bible just fell out of a tree somewhere. This was hammered out over a long period of time by people who uh, were the church. And, it, and they, were, they were all uh, certainly qualified to do what they were doing, but the point here is that they were divinely inspired 
You're talking about the Holy Spirit here who was inspiring them to say this is true and this is not true. If it weren't for the Catholic Church, there would be no Bible because it had to go through the selection process. So, yes, it's very important. All right. Uh, from Kingfish AF, who is probably our number one cozy question guy? He has great questions. He asks a lot of questions. It's great. Good going, Kingfish AF. Question, uh, did you and Charles Mautowitz have a falling out after the Holocaust debate? It's a good question. First of all, I, did we have a Holocaust yeah, debate? Yeah, the, la the last one we had was quite a while ago, and, and you brought up the Holocaust. And it, that was one where he got really defensive at first, and then all of a sudden his, it's like his, his anger and aggression kind of disappeared. Yeah, well, no, uh, no, we didn't have a falling out, no. Uh, what happened... Uh, I mean, I, every time I've I've always just sat around and waited for Charles to call. I've, it's up to him to call me. Uh, uh, but what happened after that last one is he was introduced to another group of people who were done a lot of work on the Holocaust, and uh, they, I mean, let me put this bluntly here: they did not treat this guy with kid gloves, as I do, as I did, uh, and I think that. I, I think it ended the dialogue. I'm not sure. I mean, I'd be happy to talk to Charles again, but I think that's what happened. All right, hold on a second. I'm looking for some questions here. Question, here we are. Jumping around right now. Lost my place. From 45-pound plate respecter on Cozy. Uh, why are liberals generally anti-Israel? Um... Uh, because now, when, when you say liberal, I am going to say socialist. Now, this is cl cl clearer in England than it is over here. So uh, Jer Jeremy Corbyn was a socialist. The socialist, uh, I think, drew something from Marx's critique of, of the Jews. Marx wrote a, something called Zur Judenfrage. Uh, on the Jewish question, it was influential in socialist circles, and I think that they preserved that type of distance from uh, Zionism, and they were willing to criticize uh, uh, Zionists and uh, or criticize Israel in a way that uh, other groups were not. And I think that's what led to the uh, uh, that led to that alienation. What was again? Restate the question again. What was it again? It was. A why are liberals generally anti-Israel? Yeah, I think that's I think that's why. Because, and I'm saying that liberals now liberals uh, uh, I'm saying means socialist. Uh, obviously, it has other meanings too. But I'm saying that's why I think that where that's where that came from. What about the uh, the phenomenon of kind of like young millennial or Zoomer kind of diehard liberals? Uh, usually, it seems like they're anti-Israel because of Palestine. Is is that? The same thing, or is that a different situation? I think it's the same same thing. Okay. I think that was that was that was what got Jeremy Corbyn in trouble, and uh, the Jews basically destroyed the so, uh, the uh, uh, Labour Party in, in England over this thing. The Jews have a total stranglehold on politics in England now. So there was a, a member of Parliament by the name of Bridger, who started off criticizing the COVID, the, how the public health service had handled COVID. And he said it was the worst uh, thing since the Holocaust. Well, he's not denying the Holocaust. He's saying the Holocaust was real, it was a bad thing, and so on and so forth. He got drummed out of the party. He's a conservative. He got drummed out of the party because he said the word Holocaust in a way that was not authorized. 
This is absolutely crazy. The Jews are overplaying their hand. They're alienating everybody now. Everybody, because I think they're getting desperate and they think they're starting to lose control of the narrative. And instead of just saying, well, let's be reasonable, they're doubling down and they're making everybody uh, unhappy because of their unreasonable demands and, and their insistence on, on things that uh, people no longer believe in. Next, we have Koza from Cozy. Question. But what would you say are some of the main reasons why Roman Catholicism is correct over Orthodox? I am split at the moment. Well, you, uh, so I just went explained to you how the Greeks dominated the discussion leading up to the formulation of the Trinity. I mean, they were the intellectual powerhouse at that point. And what happened over this period of time is that they, it, it, there was the schism, okay? The, the East broke with the West. And once the East broke with the West, uh, they tried to pretend that Rome was not the center of the church. Rome was always the center of the church, even though Rome was not the most intellectual powerhouse. Uh, the Greeks were the intellectual powerhouse of the church. And when they broke with the church, they became ethnocentric. So what you had was the development of ethnic churches. Like, and so in order to become Orthodox, you have to become, join an ethnic group. And I've seen this, I have Bulgarian friends, people called me up, uh, they were Bulgarian Orthodox, well they were all ex-Protestants, and they think, I think they just developed some type of animus toward the Catholic Church uh, back then, and they decided to become Orthodox. Well, so we, I'm invited to the convention, and it turns out there are two groups there. There are the converts who don't speak Bulgarian, and then there are the Bulgarians. This is the problem that, that these, these Orthodox churches have suffered because they broke with the principle of unity. The principle of unity is Rome. It resides in Rome, and that is the principle of the Catholic Church. And if you have that unity, you will uh, be daring in a way that, uh, like the Italian artist, like Giotto breaking with the uh, Greek models, the icon. That's the type of daring that Catholicism has, and it's not there in, in the Orthodox churches. And I'm saying this as a friend of the Orthodox. I was invited to that Orthodox conference. I'm probably the only Catholic who spoke there. Uh, and I said exactly that, what I said here. I gave the art, the dangers of beauty lecture, and that's what I said. Uh, that, was, that was part of the problem. There was a time when it was resolved. It was the Council of Florence. Okay, uh, because the uh, emperor in the east was being threatened by the Turks. They were going to overrun Constantinople. And he said, we're going to resolve this, and it was resolved. And then when people like Bessarion went back to their people, when they went back to the Russians, the rank and file rejected, rejected it because that insul insularity had grown uh, so big that it wasn't manageable anymore. That's the tragedy. I think that there was an attempt to resolve this. I think Pope John Paul II wanted to resolve it, and then it got destroyed because of geopolitics, specifically, I think, the breakup of Yugoslavia, uh, where the Orthodox have always felt uh, uh, that they had a presence there. Russia has always felt uh, some type of uh, uh, relationship with Serbia, for example. And so the first, uh, I think it was the first, state to represent, to recognize an independent Croatia, which was always traditionally Catholic, was the Vatican. And that put an end to 
dialogue, and it's this, we're now at the absolute worst point in history because of NATO's aggression against Russia right now. It has exacerbated all of the problems that the Russian Orthodox Church has, that Russians have, and I speak of someone who has grandchildren who speak Russian, but, uh, which is xenophobia. We should, it's all because of uh, the West that this, we have this resurgence of xenophobia, and I, I can understand why they feel that way. From Gen X Catholic, question, uh, uh, why did Kroll want to sue you regarding the book? That's a good question. <laughs> why don't you ask him? <laughs> that, well, believe me, I was stunned when I got the letter from his lawyer, and I composed my response, and uh, my response was, if what I said is false, point out the error. If what I said is true, why do you strike me? Uh, and unsurprisingly, I never got an answer to that. So I haven't the. F I, 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 let me tell you this. I think his secretary had something to do with it because it's the new secretary who took over after the first one, who was well disposed toward me, uh, I think poisoned his mind. He said to me, uh, when I, after I sent the manuscript, he said to me, uh, his eminence uh, has not read your book and cannot read your book. In other words, he's, he's non-compus mentis by this point. That's, that was the implication. And he said, but I have read your book and I have prepared reports on it. Well, I, I, and then that's where it came from. I think I assumed he just poisoned the mind of the cardinal against me. On the other hand, the lawyer who dealt with uh, my lawyer um, said, you're crazy if you don't think Kroll is involved personally in this suit. So whatever it is, it was a moment of opportunity that has passed. Uh, and I think of this whenever I see the, the, the zombies, the fentanyl zombies, staggering around Kensington and Allegheny, the, which is uh, Kensington or Fishtown, where both my wife and my family has come from, and wonder if we had introduced a discussion, if the church had gotten behind a discussion of ethnic cleansing in Philadelphia and the dislocation, the destruction of Catholic parishes and destruction of the moral life of the people of Philadelphia. If we had had that discussion, would things have changed? Would things have turned out differently? Well, we'll never know because we never had that discussion. Uh, Dr. Jones, for those who don't know, could you tell them the name of the book? And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The book is called John Cardinal Kroll and the Cultural Revolution. Uh, this is based on primary sources. I had access to all of the Kroll papers in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia archives. This is primary, primary document research. The first time I'd ever done this type of thing, the first book I had written in that regard, and it changed my mind. It changed my fundamental attitude toward what was going on because at one point I felt, when I began Fidelity Magazine, I thought it, this is an intra-Catholic conflict between liberals and conservatives. And once I did that book and saw the archives, I realized, no, it's Kulturkampf, which is why I changed that. What, it's exactly analogous to what happened in uh, Germany after uh, Prussia uh, unified the country and inaugurated the Kulturkampf against the Catholic Church. It was forces outside the Catholic Church who were trying to destroy the Catholic Church through means that the church could not recognize, like ethnic cleansing, like so sexual subversion. The church was completely blindsided by the psychological warfare. 
and is to this day. And maybe it would have been different if Kroll had said to me, look, Mike, you, you said something really stupid on page 32. You made a mistake there. And Mike would have said, oh, okay, your, your eminence, let's change it. Let's go through it page by page. I don't want to, uh, 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 to publish a book based on errors. I want to change it. Well, it never came to that. And why didn't it change it? Why didn't it come to that? It's because Kroll was not upset by the errors in the book. He was upset by the truth in the book. And I'm not going to change the truth. It's a little past the hour, Dr. Jones. You want to keep going? Yeah, let's get. I, I talked a little bit longer, so we'll t t take a few more questions. Okay. From Tradition Appreciator, question. Uh, can you please expound on the Rockefellers funding uh, the spread of Protestantism in Latin America and why? Yeah, the Rockefeller uh, family, uh, uh, especially John D. Rockefeller III, was obsessed with uh, population. Uh, uh, with demographics and the uh, rise, uh, the, basically this rise of population, a population increase. And he was obsessed because uh, the Protestant denominations that were basically the ruling class in America had all adopted the contraceptive. And uh, he wanted to preserve his wealth, and he felt that if, if the Catholics and the blacks, the Negroes, keep reproducing, he will lose his political power. And so he set about to limit the population of the world. And the best way, the only two, as I said, the only two opponents were the Negroes and the Catholics. The Negroes were easy to buy off. It was basically, they have no, no unity. You had a lot of ministers, uh, classic example being uh, Reverend Leon Sullivan in Philadelphia, who became a pawn of the Ford Foundation, John J. McCloy who actually worked for the Rockefellers early on. They were easy, uh, and they would even set up birth control clinics in their churches. The Catholic Church was a bigger, bigger problem because it was unified, it was worldwide. And this is where uh, Hesburgh came in, and Hesburgh introduced John D. Rockefeller III to Pope Paul VI in the summer of, uh, I believe it was 1965. And uh, this led to the corruption of Catholic morals because the Rockefellers funded a, secret, uh, a series of secret conferences at Notre Dame. I was the one who brought out that story. I'm the first one to talk about that story. Other people have talked about it since, but I was the first one. I got it from the Rockefeller archives. This was archival research. I saw the letter that John D. Rockefeller wrote to the Pope trying to uh, help him out by uh, offering to write his birth control encyclical for him. Now, Nelson Rockefeller was his brother, and he was a specialist in Latin America, and what they did there was promote Protestant sects uh, throughout Latin America. That's, that's not my, that was not part of the story. Nelson, John D. Rockefeller is part of the, my story, but Nelson Rockefeller wasn't, and it's uh, information you can, you can find that uh, elsewhere. But they did promote the uh, spread of Protestant sects throughout Latin America because they would uh, endorse uh, birth control in a way that the Catholics would not, and that was the whole goal, to drive down the birth rate in these uh, inferior peoples, according to the Rockefeller view. From So True UK, um, question. Will you speak to His Excellency, uh, Excellency Bishop Richard Williamson again? Uh, how did you enjoy his company? 
I have always enjoyed being in Bishop Williamson's company. I think he's a charming guy. Um, he stayed at my house twice. Um, I visited him in Wimbledon. Whether we meet again is, is uh, what should I say, what the Muslims say. Inshallah, we will meet again. Uh, but uh, whether that's going to happen is something, I don't know. We don't, we don't frequent the similar circles. Maybe something will happen when the Holocaust book comes out. Uh, Lady Michelle Renouf um, um, is involved in that struggle. She's a friend of Bishop Williamson. Maybe we'll, maybe we won't. It's up, it's, it's God, God, uh, God proposes, man, dis, man proposes, God disposes. Here's one. Uh, Dr. Jones, what is your prediction for Germany? Will we, Germans, be able to overcome the Jewish deception? Yes, if you go back to church. This, this is the whole point of that video that I did uh, based on the terrible situation in Germany right now. Terrible situation where they're being totally ruled by pawns of oligarchs, this bear book. Ach du je. She declared war on Russia. I can't believe how stupid this is. How is it you end up being ruled by people like this? The answer is sexual subversion. And sexual subversion has crippled the German people. And so I th it's crippled to the point where you, it's very difficult to start a conversation, even though I can speak their language. And so after doing the book on beauty, I came to the conclusion that the artist can sometimes portray what the philosopher cannot explain. And that's why it, in the middle of the video, when I say, Deutschland braucht ein Heiland, I started playing box sleepers awake in the hope that there was this residual consciousness in the German mind of a time when I went to church during Advent, when we prayed for the coming of the Messiah, and suddenly I would remember that feeling of what it was like to believe that we had the Messiah had come and that we were going to celebrate Christmas, which is a huge kind of German celebration, and that we would go back to church. It's hopeless unless the Germans go back to church. Every German is baptized. They, are, they have been destroyed uh, as a nation. First of all, they were conquered by the Americans, and then the worst thing that happened to them was they sent all these Jewish social engineers over, like David Mordecai Levy, who gave them the licensed press, like rags like Der Spiegel und Stern, and they have become crippled because of their sexual indulgence. Germany is the whorehouse of Europe. It's got a huge prostitution problem, and no one is talking about this. Until they break with this, until they go, fall down on their knees and say, I'm sorry, and go back to the communion that created the German nation, okay, it's, they're in a hopeless situation, and they will sleepwalk to their death, to their doom, if they don't do this. Uh, there's an ongoing debate in chat about Gnosticism and being a Christian. Dr. Jones, is it, is it possible to be a Gnostic and a Christian? Sure it is. It's known as a heresy. Uh, Augustine tried this. You can be a heretical Christian. Uh, you're not going to go anywhere intellectually or spiritually, but you can. Augustine was part of this. He was drawn to this kind of Gnostic, uh, what say, division between 
body and soul, between spirit and matter, mutually exclusive things that basically deny the incarnation. And it appealed to him because he was uh, himself addicted to sexual sin, and he could dissociate that from his mind by saying, oh, it's only my body doing it. And Augustine came to realize, no, no, they're connected. And this is the whole gist of the incarnation, is that you can't, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not a machine that you drive around like your car. And so he switched and became Catholic and remained faithful to that, uh, to his death. So yeah, sure, you want, you want to end up in a dead end? You want to end up uh, being a, a slave to an obsolete heresy? Go ahead, you know, be my guest. Break into jail. Go for it. All right, a end of debate there. Uh, it's uh, 616. You want to do one more? One more question. All right. Um, from Militant Yay Stan. Question. Thoughts on Netanyahu's son defending Hungary? Says it's not anti-Semitism to criticize George Soros, among other things. You hear about this? I'm hearing it for the first time. Uh, normally, I have an opinion immediately, and I don't, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with one right now. What we're seeing in uh, Eastern Europe, especially Hungary, is uh, the beginning of the end of NATO. The, it's cracking apart. Uh, we have the world turned upside down in the Balkans where the Croats are uh, refusing to send weapons to the Ukraine and the Serbs are defending the Ukrainians. Completely world turned upside down. Uh, Hungary is, uh, Orban is trying to defend the Hungarian people. Uh, God bless him, but oftentimes people in, like Maloney, and another nationalist leader, but oftentimes these people feel that in order to uh, do this, they have to get a license from the Jews. And so Maloney looks like a, she's a Zionist. Uh, it's similar to what uh, DeSantis is in Florida, you know, or what Trump was in New York. Uh, so, but that's about all I can say. I have no idea who Benjamin Netanyahu's whose son is. I wouldn't know if I bumped into him in the street. I have no idea whether he's getting money. To, I have no idea. So I'll have to punt on that question. All right. Well, uh, let's see. I don't have any announcements. Thanks again, everybody. Once again, this is EMJ Live. It's every Friday at 5. Everything, uh, all links are in the chat, um, both ends, Telegram and Cozy, if you're wondering about where to get the books or where to get the magazine. Uh, if you're not already subscribed, subscribe to Culture Wars Magazine at culturewars.com. Don't forget to follow us if you're on Cozy. Don't forget to follow us if you're on Telegram. Uh, we're on Gab, we're on BitChute, we're on Twitter. Follow us, watch our videos, all that general stuff. No announcements. Uh, let's see, I got nothing. Yeah, no announcements. Uh, last words, Dr. Jones, yes. you have last words. Thank you. you. I think, I've enjoyed our conversation. See you next week. God bless, guys.